71 of your pew Bible. <clears throat> I do encourage you to go there. We're going to look at not only the text we heard read, we're going to make our way all the way through it, um, including the end of the chapter. There's just a little bit more where the destruction of Judah and what they will experience at the hand of Assyria is uh, detailed with a little more poetry, a little more vigor there. But the chief struggle we're going to have today is, is all of the names of the people and the places that are part of this story. But I kind of want to, I'm going to waste a little time, but I want to I tell another story about why I think this is so important. There was a moment when it hit me that I knew more about the backstory to J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings trilogy, that is, about the fathers of the kings, people who weren't even in the books. They're in notes he took about the books that then later got published. I knew more about that than I knew about the lore. That's what that is, lore of the Bible. And it struck me that that was kind of backwards. I knew more about the history of things that didn't even exist than I knew about the history of the actual planet I'm living on and more than that, the history of the religion that I actually claim to believe in. And so that's what we're going to be doing today. We're going to dig into the lore. And while the names are weird, I get it. Resin? Pika? You're not going to name your I hope you're not going to name your kids Resin or Pika. They're, they're weird names. Knowing who they are and their place in the story is part of knowing who Emmanuel is. Who is Jesus of Nazareth? How did he get here? Why did he change history? All of this is part of that. And part of that specific prophecy as well. So you have, right at the start of chapter 7, verse 1, you got a bunch of names dropped on you. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah. That's three kings of Judah. Judah being descended from David. Remember, David's king of Israel. He has all the promises. His throne will endure forever. Solomon, his son, sits on the throne, the golden empire. People come from all over the world just to hear the guy talk. But his son, Rehoboam, is a punishment on Solomon for, in his wisdom, turning from God to worship foreign gods at the behest of his wives. And so God, after Solomon's death, rips the kingdom in half. And Rehoboam loses the north to a, an upstart named Jeroboam, son of Nebat. Jeroboam is not only just powerful as a guy, but he also has a claim to being of the greatest of the tribes of Israel. Now, we Christians were used to thinking of David and Judah as being the greatest of the tribes of Israel because that's where Jesus came from. But back before any of that happened, you wouldn't have assumed that Judah was where it was all going to come from. You would have assumed maybe that Ephraim was more important. In fact, there was a saying that they had, may God make you like Ephraim. Because God had so blessed the son of Joseph that Ephraim was one of the largest tribes. They were militarily strong. They were financially well off all through their history. And so when Jeroboam lays claim to the throne of Israel as a descendant of Joseph, one of the greatest names in their history, the end of the book of Genesis is all about how great Joseph is, right? Ephraim then becomes the north. And this is the part of the, the naming here. So the northern kingdom gets called Israel 
The southern kingdom gets called Judah, but sometimes the north is going to be referred to as Ephraim. Because Ephraim is the tribe that's running all the other tribes. Nathali and Issachar, they don't really cut it for being kind of the, the part for the whole reference. All right, so that's the north. We haven't even gotten to there in the text. But in the south, in Judah, you have the house of David. David's descended from Judah, but David's the one with the promises. You have Solomon. And then this continues on down many, many generations. And suddenly, we just get three of them here. But the, the hat tip is that it's all from the house of David, okay? That Uzziah, Jotham, and Ahaz. Uzziah, little known, but awesome king. This guy did really well. He was faithful. He was wise. He built these amazing like war contraptions that they put up on the towers of Jerusalem to throw big items down on troops that would attack them way ahead of his time. He's also the one who got a big head. You know, you do well, you get a big head. At the end of his life, he tries to burn incense. You remember this story? He tries to burn incense for the priests. The priests say, stop. He says, why should I stop? I can do this. And he breaks out in leprosy. So he spends the last 15 years of his reign from hiding. And his son Jotham has a co-regency. Okay, so here's Jotham then. He's the next one. Um, Uzziah is awesome. Jotham's not so bad. Uh, Jotham just kind of maintains things. But all that we've heard in Isaiah 1 through 6 up to this point where God's saying, uh, you know, their lips praise me, but their hearts are far from me. That's during the reign of Uzziah and Jotham. So you have these kings who are doing the right thing. You have the, the priests doing the right thing, but the people are more and more being distracted by false religion or by no religion at all until this guy Ahaz comes along. And Ahaz, who takes the throne pretty young, I think he's about 20 years old, Ahaz uh, turns out to uh, want it all to be backwards. He really prefers worshiping false gods. And I know it's kind of hard these days to imagine, like, why would you worship a golden statue? But I think you just got to take away the idea that it's about a statue and put it more in terms of trying to believe you're going to get answers to your problems from something. Where do you go for your answers to your problems? Right? Uh, when something bad happens to you, is your first step to say, Jesus Christ, have mercy on me? Is your first step to say, I got to go to the ER? And I'm not saying that the ER is bad and never go there. I'm saying that when you go there first and don't pray along the way, it's, it's, it's confessing something, right? And then a society begins to confess that thing more than confess who their God is. Well, eventually they don't confess their God at all. And Ahaz is not only letting this happen, he's doing this on purpose. He's choosing this kind of place, right? And for this reason, God is going to punish Israel significantly. And that's part of what's happening here. He lets I shouldn't say Israel. He's going to punish Judah significantly. He lets Israel and Syria form an alliance to attack Judah. We'll get to that here in a moment. Let's go ahead and read about it, though. So, in the days of Ahaz, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it. This is known to history as the Syrio-Ephraimitish War. Now put that one in your, your pocket. Yeah, um, Fun at parties if you can talk about the Syrio-Ephraimitish War. So <clears throat> if you kind of look up here at me, um, Judah is here in the south. Israel's here in the north. Syria is a, a nation, a group of people, a language group, centered in the city Damascus up on the coastlands. They're a powerful trading center. 
and historically they weigh a lot of they, they they have a lot of influence in the region and from time to time they've taken parts of the north and then they've lost parts of it back they're not disconnected from the philistines but they're not exactly the philistines either so they're up here israel's here centered in samaria that's the capital of of northern israel again ephraim they form an alliance against judah they're planning to come down attack judah take it over uh, put someone a puppet king in charge on the throne now what we know about resin is is not that much the king of damascus all i can say to you is like to be the king of damascus in the ancient world you were joking around like we can't we can't even imagine really and all we can think about is presidents and governors and things like that I mean, it's kind of like being a governor, but no, no, no. You had to kill people to get this job. Like, you had to kind of be brutal. You had to be not afraid of anyone. You needed to be cutthroat, right? And so this guys he's, he's, a, he's a bad dude, okay? Uh, now, Pika also, kind of a bad dude. And, and his story is not that important, but I, I do want to give you a little of it. Because the history of this northern kingdom is really a history of two dynasties, and then a bunch of catastrophe. So the two dynasties are, I mentioned Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who goes up against Rehoboam, Solomon's son, splits the kingdom in half. Jeroboam's family will rule the north for several generations, all the way down to a guy named Ahab, who marries a, guy, a girl named, you know this one? Jezebel, right? And then it's so bad at that point that God's like, I'm done with the house of Jeroboam, done with him. And so he handpicks through Elisha, a guy named Jehu. And Jehu's one of these stories that's really fascinating because on the one hand, he's kind of awesome. He kind of does it right. He, he really does seem to know what God says and do it. And then suddenly he doesn't and he does it wrong again. And so at the end of his reign, I mean, he, he does conquer Israel. He gets rid of Jezebel's family like he's supposed to. At the end of his reign, though, when he's worshiping false gods again, God says to him, because you did what was right, even though I'm going to tear the kingdom from you, I'll give you four generations. So your, your son, your grandson, your great-grandson, they're going to be able to sit on the throne of northern Israel. Okay, so that gets us down to a guy named Zechariah. He's the king of the north. And he is, the again, the great-grandson of Jeroboam. Um, this is when it all starts to go topsy-turvy. You have a succession of five kings in which only one time is it a king and his son. So Zechariah is offed by a guy named Shalom, who lasts a month before he's offed by a guy named Manahem, who reigns 11 years, but his son Pekiah, two years, and he's offed by Pekah, okay, the guy we're going to talk about now, right? He does last 20 years, but he's also offed uh, by a guy named Hosea, and Hosea is the one standing there when the king of Assyria conquers the whole place and takes him away with a chain through his nose. All right. So Pekah, king of Israel, king of Samaria, he is the second to last king of the north. And he is an officer who stabbed his own king in the back to take the throne. Yeah. This guy is not a good guy at all. And every time he's called Pekah, son of Remaliah throughout this text, hear that as an insult. When Isaiah says, Pekah, son of Remaliah, what he means is Pekah, who has no promise for the throne. He has no royal blood. He has no business being there. Why are you afraid of that guy, Ahaz? All right. So, again, a lot of history, a lot of lore. 
Story's going to continue here, right? Rezin and Pekah, they come down against Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. So think of it as a big country. It's not just a city. They've joined their armies together. They're invading the north, and they're having success. In fact, a major port city called Elath does get taken. There are northern farmers that are being taken slaves and all this kind of stuff. Um, but as of this point, they're not yet to Jerusalem, right? The army's coming. They're marching. They're fighting. But it's looking kind of bad. They're not, they're not there yet, right? So verse 2. What's happening as a result of this? When the house of David was told, let's say he has his family, let's say he has his throne, told Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. I, I love that image. I can just put myself out, out in my backyard. I don't quite have a forest in my backyard, but I got about five trees. I can put myself out in my backyard with the wind coming right over the little lake that we got there. You know, we live in a pretty windy area and those trees go, yeah, and everything's flicking around. Imagine now your heart's doing that, right? The whole country knows they're in trouble, that they are not going to be able to fight back against what's coming up against them. And at this point, then God says to Isaiah, verse three, go out to meet Ahaz, you and Sherad Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. That place, the highway to the washer's field, is going to become very important in chapter 37 and 38 of this story, Hezekiah's story. I'm not going to give it to you right now, but it's a big moment. It's just outside the gates of Jerusalem. You're outside the major wall. I mean, back in the day, you wanted to defend yourself. You needed a wall that was bigger than three feet. You need a 10-foot, 20-foot, 30-foot. Some cities had 60-foot walls, and they were wide enough you could drive carts back and forth across them. I don't think Jerusalem quite got that high, but it's a big wall. He's outside these walls. What's he doing? He's preparing for the battle. They're about to be put under siege. They're looking at a water source. They're trying to figure out how they're going to survive. The king is, right? And Isaiah and his son are sent to stand before the king. Now, without going too far off on the tangent, his son's name. Sha'er Jashub. The, the children of Isaiah get names that are prophecies for the people. One of his kids' names is not my people, huh? because you're not my people because you've rejected me. And yet the point of not my people is that Isaiah is then later going to say to not my people, you are my people, because though you've rejected me, I'm not rejecting you. I'm going to fight for you. Sha'er Jashub's name means the remnant shall be saved. The remnant shall believe. In fact, I might have said that wrong there. The remnant is converted, even better. The remnant is converted, which is both a curse and a promise. Right? That there's going to be a remnant means a whole lot of people aren't going to make it. But that the remnant that remains will believe means that the point of the wrath is to bring about conversion. We've hit on this idea quite a few times in the last couple of weeks, so I won't, I won't belabor it here. But you, St. Paul Lutheran Church, you, Christian out in the world, you're the remnants. You're the ones that the wrath of God against sin in your life has brought you to conversion and trust in Jesus Christ. And this isn't about surviving some sort of economic or political collapse in the present day. This is about the end of the world and the fiery hell and the devil and his angels being thrown into that fiery hell along with heaven and earth as they are now, wrapped up like a scroll and destroyed. 
But you are the believers in the Jesus who has already defeated this at the cross, paid for you, and promised you that his resurrection from the grave will be your resurrection from the grave. That you will not be cast into the fire, but that you will live with him in innocence and righteousness and blessedness forever. The remnant will be converted. That's you. And it's also a warning, too. There are always times of falling away. There are times of lukewarmness. And we're, we're hearing a story about one right now again, right? So go with the remnant will be converted. Confront Ahaz at, uh, at the washer's field. Verse 4. Say to him, be careful. Be quiet. Do not fear. And do not let your heart faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and at the son of Remaliah. It's a whole lot there. Be quiet. You know, don't do anything. What he's saying is you're not going to save yourself no matter what preparation you do with this wall. But I have a promise for you. That's what's coming. I have a promise for you of someone who will save you from Remaliah's son and from Rezin. Notice how Pekah's name isn't even mentioned. He's just called the son of Remaliah. Again, who's that guy is what he's saying, right? And he calls them smoldering stumps of firebrands, right? A little bit of fire that's about to go out. He's got to step on it. It's going to be done. Don't be afraid of these things uh, because, uh, again, don't be afraid because of what's going to happen. You could take it that way. Or because of what they're going to try to do, I'm going to crush them. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah have devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabiol as king in the midst of it, thus says the Lord God. So what they're planning, which is to unite forces and destroy Jerusalem and put in its place a puppet kingdom that's subservient to them, next line, it shall not stand. And it shall not come to pass. Not because Ahaz is faithful, but because this is Jerusalem. This is God's city. And unless God wants to remove the lampstand from that city, it's not going to happen. So just because these two other guys think they're going to do it, even though they got a faithless idolater Baal worshiper on the throne, God's going to fight for that Baal worshiper for the sake of his name. He's not going to let his name get destroyed. Now, there's another piece of information I should have thrown you just a moment ago. Uh, back when uh, we were looking at, you know, be careful, be quiet, do not fear. Because Ahaz has already not been careful and not been quiet and, and been afraid, and he's done something. He does have a plan. And frankly, from a, from a worldly position, his plan's pretty good. I mean, what do you do? You got to fight the bully after school, but your best friend's a bigger guy. Are you just going to let your best friend hang out somewhere else? You're going to say, hey, come with me after school. I need your help. Now, it's not quite like this is his best friend, but again, Judah is right here, Israel's right here, Syria's right here, and up here is Asher, better known as Assyria, right? Not Syria, but Assyria. Asher, centered in the city of Nineveh. So Asher, a thousand-year empire, a reigning kingdom to be, to be compared with the best that there ever were in the ancient world, one of the, the strongest armies that's ever been mounted. And so what does Ahab do, excuse me, Ahaz do? Ahaz takes all the silver and the gold out of the temple. Of course, this is holy stuff. You're not supposed to use this for worldly purposes. But he takes all the silver and the gold out of the temple treasuries, and he sends it up to the king of Assyria, whose uh, name uh, is going to escape me now, Naha, something like that. But anyway, he sends the money up to him, and he says, 
I'll be your friend if you'll be my friend. And look, my friends get my money. So you be my friend, I'll keep giving you my money. Just come take out Syria and Israel for me. So he's not been quiet, right? He's not been careful. He just invited the biggest bully on the block to hang out in his backyard. And he thinks it's going to go well for him. It's not. We'll get there here in a moment. But first, God has confronted him and said, you think these two little bullies over here, they're going to do anything? It will not stand. That's the end of verse 7. Verse 8 mentions the name of the king of Syria again, just to sort of mock him a little bit. Verse 9 mentions uh, the king of Israel again, just to mock him a little bit, but doesn't mention his name again. He's just the son of Remaliah, some nobody. But in between them, it says, the end of verse 8, top of the page, if you turn the page. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. So this is something that has been promised by other prophets to the north for their unbelief, which is that God is going to wipe them away. And it is Assyria who will eventually do this. They will conquer northern Israel. They will take the tribes that are there captive away. They will split up their families and sell them in slavery. And nobody gets to do what they want when they get somewhere. You end up doing what they tell you to do. And then they brought other people in and they had them intentionally forced intermarriage in order to absolutely destroy the culture that was there, to muddle the culture that was there so that if you don't have a culture, guess what you can't do? Organize to fight back. It was a very clever, wicked policy. Um, out of, as a result of this, by the way, this is where the Samaritans in the New Testament come from. The Samaritans are the descendants of the northern Israelites, poorest people who were forced to intermarry with pagans who were brought in as kind of a slave or lower class people. Okay, And he says here, that's going to happen within 65 years. And in fact, about 65 year, years later, there is a, an action taken by the head of Assyria to move in the people groups there. Uh, and, to, and to repopulate the land. So uh, now it, it ends though, his comment ends here, verse nine, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Here's the real point, right? If you don't believe in the God who saves, then you're not going to be. If you think you're going to stand and fight against God, you're going to lose. If you want to take a stand, And be fearless in all days, not just in pride, but in truth. Well, then you have to stand upon the one foundation which cannot be shaken, which is the word of the God who made you, which, as you know, remnants who shall be saved, that's Jesus of Nazareth, the one foundation laid for all humanity in his death and his resurrection. But again, here it's being said kind of before time to Ahab, just trust me. God's with you, even though you don't believe in him. You need to believe in him, because if you don't, the very thing you think you're going to do to save yourself might just be the thing that gets you killed. And there's a lot of application to that in our present day, let me say. But we'll just stick with, that's what the story is going to be about here. Ahaz thinks Assyria is his friend, doesn't know that Isaiah knows anything, and maybe Isaiah doesn't know anything about the treaty with Assyria, but he's listening to Isaiah this whole time thinking, I don't need to worry about Rezin and Pika because I got a big, powerful friend coming my way. And Isaiah is saying, you should believe, you should believe, and he's on his horse saying, whatever, shut up, prophet. Now, in fact, he doesn't speak, right? Isaiah finishes talking and there's silence. 
So again, verse 10, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Like Isaiah just has to keep going because the guy doesn't say anything. And he says, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. Right? You don't believe me, Ahaz? You don't believe me that God's going to fight for you? Ask for any miracle you want as deep as Sheol. You want someone raised from the dead? That's what that means. Right? Or as high as heaven. You want the sun to stand still for a few hours? Right? You want a fleece on the ground, wet in the morning? What do you want? Anything. And Ahaz is he's so proud. He says, I will not ask. And then he tries to be clever because I'm really faithful, I swear. Um, I will not put the Lord to the test. I mean, that's what Jesus says to Lucifer. You remember this? When the devil comes to tempt Jesus, he says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. He's quoting Deuteronomy, and so is Ahaz. But the problem is, uh, the reason that, that Deuteronomy says, don't put the Lord your God to the test, means don't say to God, if you give me a sign, then I'll believe in you. Don't say that. If only God would show himself to me, then I believe in him. Or, or God, if you'll do this for me, I've really been wanting this one thing. If you do this, then I'll commit my life to you. That's what the text says. Don't do that. But when God comes to you and said, here's your sign. Ask for it. You choose. You pick. I'm going to do it for you. A- answer. <laughs> do it. Believe. So Ahaz is, is developing or demonstrating a complete unbelief in everything that's going on here. And Isaiah's response shows how frustrating this is to Isaiah and to God. Verse 13, and he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Right? You can just see Isaiah just like, are you kidding me? I mean, isn't it bad enough that you've ruined our country? Isn't it bad enough that because of your idolatry and your wicked practices, we're going to lose all this territory and all these people are going to die. But now God's going to save you from it and you want to you mock him? Come on, man. Right? Come on. Therefore, verse 14, the Lord himself will give you a sign. You don't want to pick a sign. You're going to get a sign. And God's going to make it. And now here's this amazing verse, the Christmas verse. Behold. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And I know you've heard that before because you've heard it from Luke, who in chapter 2 says it is fulfilled when the angel Gabriel goes to the virgin Mary and tells her she's going to give birth to a, one who is conceived by the Holy Ghost within her womb without ever knowing a man, and that he shall be called the Son of the Most High God, and that he shall save his people from their sins. And the angels sing glory to God in the highest on the day that he is born. And the Magi from the far east come and worship him as King of the Jews. And he grows in favor with God and men, teaching even the teachers at the temple when he is 12 years old, and we nailed him to a cross for it. And he wouldn't stay dead because that was the point all along. Luke points that out again in in chapter 2, that this verse is about him. But we have have a little bit of a challenge. Have you noticed how there's been nothing else about him up to this point in the text? And if Ahaz is going to be given a sign that Rezin and Pekah aren't going to conquer him, what good is a sign that doesn't happen for 700 years? That's the trick. Now, this really isn't a trick, not at all, actually, but, but it can be if you're not ready for it, okay? So we've talked about this a little bit before, uh, but you may not remember that prophecy in the Old Testament tends to have more than one fulfillment, 
That is, there are a number of prophecies that happen almost right away when the prophet speaks them, and yet they also happen to Jesus. And what Jesus is then is the fulfillment of all of the prophecies. Every single one of them comes to pass in him. Whereas only some of them happen to David, and only some of them happen to Jonah, and only some of them happen to, you know, you pick your favorite character, okay? So what I'm suggesting is that this promise that the maiden shall conceive and bear a son has two fulfillments in history. Now, you'll find Lutheran pastors that disagree with me on this, and I, that's great. We can disagree about this. But it's the next part of the text that is going to make me have to take the position I take. And I'll try to explain that to you. But so let's again say there is a temporal fulfillment of the prophecy that a young woman, not necessarily a virgin, in fact, probably not a virgin. The word means a woman who has just begun her womanly custom. She has just begun her womanly custom. She's 13, 14, 15 years old, okay? Which can refer to Mary for sure. And Luke definitely uses the word virgin in, in the Greek, okay? Um, but here, uh, there is perhaps and perchance a, a young woman that Ahaz has just married. I don't have her name memorized, but she's going to have a little boy very soon. His name's going to be Hezekiah. And I think that the birth of Hezekiah and the fall of the north before Hezekiah becomes king is the, new, the near fulfillment of this text, which then is reflected forward into the ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. Let me give you one more image to think about that prophecy reflected forward idea. I said this about three weeks ago. And do you remember? The prophecy is like uh, uh, calling out what a mountain is from the distance. And you're looking at the mountain. You're like, that mountain has a peak. And as you walk toward the mountain, you're going up and up, and you'll find out that there's actually multiple peaks as you climb that mountain. But from a distance, it all looks like one peak, right? But when you get to the final top, you find out that, oh, that's the real peak. Yeah. And so the prophecies about Jesus in the Old Testament function that way, where there is a near fulfillment that kind of has to happen. Otherwise, why would they keep the prophecy? If he says the virgin's going to conceive and bear a son and nobody has any babies, why'd they keep the book? Yeah. Well, because uh, somebody had a baby and everything he said was happening took place. Yeah. They keep the book and then all the books together, piled together, are still pointing forward to the one who will be the actual God with us, Emmanuel. Yeah. All right, so let me, let me take these next verses that kind of, I think, compel us this direction a little bit. Um, uh, verse 14 again ends with, they shall call his name Emmanuel. 15 and 16. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For, verse 16, because, is what four means there, because before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. Verse 17, the Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah. The king of Assyria. Oh, there's so much there. But, you know, Ahaz is sitting here thinking, I don't need to worry. I got the king of Assyria. And suddenly the prophet says, you know what's going to happen? King of Assyria is coming for you. Oh, wait a minute. That's not what I was planning. Yeah. So, and, and then that's what's going to happen here. So, before the boy knows how to choose the evil or the good. Um, little kids are sinners. They need to be baptized. They need to be saved. But there is sort of an age at which they start to think and an age before which they don't think much. 
Like they don't know the difference between good and evil. They can't really make a conscious choice. It's more like I want, I want, no, 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 right? And so before this boy who's going to be born to this maiden is old enough to choose good or evil for himself, round age 12, round age 13, something like that, okay? Before that, he's going to be forced to eat nothing but curds and honey. Because all the land will be able to produce nothing but, again, butter and honey. And while if I go out for a meal and I want to get a nice dessert, you know, something that's got a lot of sweet cream, that sounds pretty good to me. That's all you have to eat. It's not that good for you. And and more so than this, it means in the ancient world, you're in survival mode. That means you've got a goat and you're milking it. And that's what you're eating because the grain, the fields destroyed the vines for the wine gone. The olive trees burned down, right? So before this child who is to be born will know how to choose good or evil, he will be forced to grow up on nothing but the poorest of the poor food in a time of starvation because Assyria is coming against you, Ahaz. Now, again, do you see how for the prophecy of Emmanuel to be fulfilled, where he only eats this before he chooses good, it has to be sooner than later? And that's where, again, I think Hezekiah is a near fulfillment of that. Maybe I'll come back to that here at the end. We've got about, about 12 minutes left here. I want to finish the text. Most of what comes next is just more piling on of the destruction. Okay. More piling on of the destruction. Uh, In that day, verse 18, the Lord will whistle for the fly that is at the end of the streams of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. So when Hezekiah, the the man who has grown up in this destructive state, is, is in his kingdom, his threat is going to be Assyria, who's conquered the north, coming down and trying to conquer him. And at the same time, everyone who is Uh, His counselors, they tell him to go and ask help from from Egypt, who's over here. And so Assyria and Egypt, these two great empires, they're actually kind of jostling for position over this central strip, part of the Fertile Crescent, a trade route, and all these other things. And what God says here then, again in verse 18, is I'm going to make both of them attack you at the same time. I'm going to whistle for them. They'll they'll do what I want. They're going to bring destruction upon you. Verse 19, and they will come and settle in the steep ravines and in the clefts of the rocks and on all the thorn bushes and on all the pastures. In that day, the Lord will shave with a razor that is hired beyond the river the king of, with the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the feet, and it will sweep away the beard also, right? So poetic language. I'm going to bring Assyria against you. Egypt will not help you when this happens. Your pastures are going to be destroyed. You're not going to have any food. In fact, I'm going to embarrass you. That's what the whole shaving is. So, you know, imagine you take anybody and like capture them and shave their head, right? They're going to walk out. They're going to kind of be like, oh, lost my hair. Yeah. Uh, and, and back then, this for men would have included the beard. <clears throat> like to have your beard shaved was kind of a classic way of embarrassing you. <clears throat> this happens at one point, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, I, I forget the story in the prophets, but uh, there's a group of men that are purposely shaved, uh, shamed by shaving half of their beard. And they're sent off naked with half of their beard missing. And it's, it's all intended to make them uh, look stupid in front of everybody. God effectively is saying that I'm, I'm going to shame you, Judah, 
for your idolatry. Uh, verse 21, in that day, a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep. That's not a lot. I know that's a lot for you. Like having a cow in your backyard is probably too much work right now, but this is not wealth. This is poverty. I will keep alive a young cow and two sheep. And because of the abundance of milk that they give, he will eat honey, or excuse me, he will eat butter. That's the curds, butter. For everyone who is left in the land will eat butter and honey. And so just repeating that same idea from before that you won't be able to eat meat. You won't be able to eat bread. You won't have any wine. You'll be surviving on the milk of your animals. Verse 23, in that day, every place where there used to be a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels, think wineries, all the expensive wineries, they will be uh, briars and thorns. With bow and arrows, a man will come there for all the land will be briars and thorns. That is, you're going to go hunt to try to find some meat. That's the only way you're going to get it. Verse 25, and as for all the hills that used to be hoed with a hoe, you will not come there for fear of briars and thorns. But it will become a place where cattle are let loose and where sheep tread. All right, so that's just more of this prophecy, this sign that is Emmanuel. Huh? And this sign of Emmanuel is the birth of a child who will be born into a time of collapsing empire, collapsing kingdom. Now, the story has a really good ending because Hezekiah is going to be a good king. He's going to enact a reformation. He's going to tear down the high places. He's going to take the altar of Baal that Ahaz sets up in the center of the sanctuary. He's going to remove that and put the right altar back. Uh, his name, his title, they call him the restorer of the song of Israel. And the story about how he does stand upon or inside the wall of Jerusalem when Assyria has fulfilled everything that was just said here and has conquered all of Judah except for Jerusalem. And they're standing with an army outside his gates calling out how we're going to take y'all and you're going to eat your own feces. Hezekiah goes to Isaiah the prophet and says, what shall I do? And he says, go in the temple and pray. Hezekiah is going to go in the temple and pray. And God with us, not Hezekiah, but the God who hears will send his angel armies down into those Assyrian troops and slaughter thousands of them in a single night. And more than that, it will uh, usher in a, a series of events that brings about the collapse of the entire Assyrian Empire so that Babylon eventually uh, will take over. So the story isn't, doesn't end bad, but this is Ahaz's story here. Yeah? And Ahaz, in his unbelief, is not firm. He will not stand on what he knows to be true. Instead, he keeps seeking his own way and his own will. And the lesson then, again, that you have from this is that you're there watching all of this as Jahar Shalom. You're there as the son of Isaiah. You're there as the remnant who will be converted. You're there as the one who says, Ahaz, why are you doing what you're doing? You're there as the one who says, I want to believe in Emmanuel. And thus, this shadowy history, this lore of the Old Testament, does point you forward to its ultimate fulfillment in our King, Jesus Christ. Which we could kind of just end there, probably. Um, but the way to then take this a little bit and, and make it yours is to see how the world wants you to be afraid of so many things. I check uh, a certain news site every morning. I spend about 10 minutes on it. Just look at the headlines. 
every morning. And every single headline there, even though I like the spin they put on it, I think they're telling the truth. You might not, but I do, blah, 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 we're in that fight. Every single story there is supposed to make me angry or afraid. It's the purpose of the whole thing. Angry or afraid. And that's not just then uh, true for the, the political side of things or the economic side of things. It's true for everything they want to sell you. Did you see that commercial about this and that thing that does this and that? I didn't even know I had that problem, but I do, and I want the answer now. Right? Everything about this life is going to try to tell you it's about this life and that you got to act. And the lesson here is that you have a God who's bigger than all of this. He knows exactly what's going on in your life. There are no accidents with Jesus Christ. Even the worst thing that could possibly happen to you will be his will for you. That will continue the conversion of you into simple trust in him. And the more you can train your mind with discipline to know that before the bad times come, better off you're going to be in the bad times. You'll be able to say it's the Lord's will. He knows what he's doing. He gives, he takes away, but he has a plan and his plan is restoration. His plan is that I'm part of the remnant. His plan is that inside the body of the risen Savior, Jesus Christ, I shall look upon my God in the land of the living and all who have loved his coming will be there with me. And nothing that we lose in this present age will not be restored more than 100 fold. What we have is tents will then be mansions. Yeah. So whatever the stories are that are bothering you most, the promise of Emmanuel is that a day is coming when you won't have to worry about anything ever again. So believe in that day now and see if it doesn't make a difference in how you face every morning. In the name of Jesus, amen.